You know, as, as a pastor, as a pastor, almost everything turns into a sermon illustration. So, you know, when my kids act up at home, it, it'll eventually make its way into a sermon illustration. Anything that it happens, and anything intense that happens to a pastor it makes its way into some sermon, and we have to watch it sometimes. But I, I used to uh, work with my former pastor. I was with him for over 10 years. We started in youth ministry together. Uh, his name is Aaron, and he was the student ministries director at a church called East Hill Foursquare, and he used to tell this story uh, in multiple sermons. He would bring it up all the time, but one time, my friend and I, we went white water rafting down the White Salmon River in Oregon. Has ever, anybody ever been white water rafting before? Yeah, and uh, we were invited to go with a group of instructors. They were training new instructors, and they had some space left in the raft, and they said, would you guys like to join us? And so we we're like, yeah, of course, a free whitewater rafting trip. That sounds awesome. And um, they were going to take us down this portion of the river that has class four, class four water rapids, and they were given some instruction before we went down. They said, now, if you fall out of the boat, the last thing that you want to do, if you fall out of the front of the boat, you want to swim away from the raft as fast as possible because if you are in the front of the boat, out of the water, you could get crushed between incoming rocks and the raft. And so if you fall out of the front of the boat, get off to the side as fast as you can and wait till we get out of the rapids into, into softer waters for people to pull you back into the raft. And so we said, okay, okay, we got it. And they said, the other thing that you don't want to do is if you're trying to help somebody in the raft, don't, don't hold on to their life jacket because you could drown them. They need to maybe swim away or get away, but if you're pinning them against the life raft, they can't get away. And I was like, got it, got it, all right. So we, we get in the boat, we get in the raft, and we're going down this class four rapid, and my friend Aaron leaves out of the raft, falls into the rapids, and he falls right into the front of the raft. And what do I do? I grab his life jacket. <laughs> and I'm pinning him up against the, the life raft, and he's facing away from me. He can't see who's holding on to him. And we're going up, you know, up these big rapids and slapping back down. And so he takes a big breath as we come up. And then he goes under the water for about 10 seconds and then comes back up. And I look at the guy, the instructor, and the instructor says, pull him in the boat. Pull him in the boat. And I'm holding onto his life jacket. And I'm pulling, but I'm, I haven't, I'm only 19 years old. I haven't grown into my college body yet, you know. <laughs> and I'm trying to pull him in. I, I can't. I'm not strong enough to get him into the boat. And, and finally, this big, burly instructor comes over and with one grab just picks him up and hoists him into the raft. And then the instructor goes and sits back down. So by the time Aaron turns around, he sees only me. And he thinks that I intervened and saved his life. And he looks at me and he goes, you saved my life. Thank you, Blake. Thank you. And for years at church, he told this story in his sermon illustrations as though Blake saved my life, and I didn't say anything. I just let him tell the story like that. I was too embarrassed to admit that I wasn't strong enough to pull him in the boat. And so I let him tell the story. And about a couple years later, you know, he was transitioning out, and I was becoming the new high school pastor at this church. I said, hey, by the way, you remember that whitewater action story that you would tell? I said, yeah, that, that wasn't me that pulled you. And I was actually, I was the one who almost drowned you. Um, it was the instructor. He came over and he pulled you in the boat. And he goes, what? I thought it was you all this time. I said, no, somebody else intervened. You would have died if he had not intervened in your life. You know, we're talking about the good news. And last, last week we talked about the bad news. 
We, talk, we, we set up this series by talking about how, uh, according to Scripture, we are born not good people. We are born separated from God, enemies of God. We are born deserving of death, and there's nothing that we can do to change it. That's the bad news. But this morning, I've got good news for you. And the good news, uh, the word gospel from the New Testament, the Greek word for gospel literally means good news. It's a proclamation of good news. And Peter gets up in this first sermon ever preached in Acts chapter 2. After the Holy Spirit comes and fills 120 people in the upper room, Peter stands boldly in front of thousands of people in Jerusalem, and he preaches the first gospel message. And as a result of this gospel message, the church grows from 120 to 3,000 people. There's 3,000 people added to their number after this message is preached. That it must have been a really awesome message. And fortunately, we have the transcript right here. And so he starts in Acts chapter 2 by giving a synopsis of the gospel. And really, the gospel is presented in four pillars. He talks about the incarnation, that Jesus came to be with you. He talks about the crucifixion, that Jesus died to forgive you. In fact, he looks at the people he's preaching to, and he says, you're the ones who put him to death. You put him on the cross. With the help of wicked men, you executed the Son of God. You killed the Messiah. And thirdly, the third pillar of the gospel is his resurrection. He preaches that Jesus rose to give us new life to transform us, to give us new natures. We're no longer uh, people that are prone to sin, no longer sinners saved by grace, but we are saints in the kingdom of God. And Paul refers to us over and over in the New Testament as saints and beloved children of God, no longer enemies, but friends of God. And the fourth pillar is Jesus' exaltation, that Jesus ascended to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to help us and to give us victory and to empower us to live the life that Jesus lived. Four pillars of the gospel. Jesus came to be with you. Jesus died to forgive you. Jesus rose to give you new life. And Jesus ascended to give you victory. And today we're talking about the incarnation and how God intervened in a moment we were headed for death. We were headed for an eternity separated from God in hell. And God intervened, stepped into our lives in the midst of our brokenness, and he saved us. And this is what Peter says in Acts 2, 22. It says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You want to know the good news about the Bible is that from the very beginning of time, God has always expressed his desire to be with us. God has wanted to be with us from the very first chapter of of the Bible. In Genesis, we see that God creates mankind to walk in the garden among him. And God would come and walk with Adam in the cool of the day. And humanity had a proximity to God. They could be in his presence and ask him questions. And they understood a little bit more about who God was because they had proximity to him. And God was always with man from the very beginning. But then what happened? Sin came into the world. Adam and Eve disobeyed by eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to eat of. And so as a result, humanity was separated from the presence of God. But God in his goodness said, I don't like this. 
I don't like being separate from my people. I'm going to make a way to dwell with them. So he gave Moses very specific instructions for how to build a tabernacle, which is essentially a portable tent or a temple. And so the Israelites built this tabernacle, and God's presence would literally come from heaven in a pillar of fire and descend upon the Ark of the Covenant, and his presence resided in the tabernacle. And so wherever Israel went, that's why it was a portable tent, wherever Israel went, they would pack up this tabernacle, they would take it with them, and they would establish it again wherever they camped next. And so God expresses his desire even then. I want to be with my people. I need to figure out a way to be among my people. But was it a perfect relationship at the time? No, it wasn't because humanity, mankind could not uh, rid themselves of sin. So they could not fully be in the presence of God. They were not allowed to fully experience God's presence except on the day of atonement where the high priest would walk into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant to atone for the sins of the nation but it still wasn't a perfect relationship and God said there has to be a better way for me to be with my people and so his presence is fully expressed in the person of Jesus where God himself decided I'm going to step off of my throne And I'm going to take on the likeness of man so that I can be with them once again. And then he goes even further. Because God not only wants to be with us, not not only wants to be among us, but he wants to dwell inside of us. And this is why Jesus had to go to heaven. He had to ascend to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to not not only be with us, but to be with us. to be inside of us, to dwell inside of us. And now, church, we live in the most exciting time in history because not only do we have full access to the presence of God, but he lives inside of us. He has filled you with his presence. He's filled you with his spirit. The most coveted relationship of all history is now something that you have full access to and something that you can give freely to others. When people come in contact with you, they come in contact with the nature of God. They come in contact with the Spirit of God. When they look at you, they're supposed to see Jesus himself, God with us, God among us. From the beginning, God has expressed his desire to be with you. So he came in the form of a man, and Jesus According to scripture, it's clear that Jesus was not just a man. Many, many religions would teach this. Many people believe that Jesus was just a really good, moral man. He gave some great sermons. He was a really great guy. Other religions teach that he was just a prophet, but he wasn't God. Jesus was not just a man. And also, Jesus wasn't 50% man and 50% God. He wasn't like Hercules, a demigod, you know. Born a little, uh, one foot in each. No, Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. 100% God and 100% man. Where do we see this in Scripture? In Philippians 2, 5 through 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We have it on the screen. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. This is what Paul says to the church in Philippi. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. We see another example of this in John chapter 1, verse 14. John, the author of this book, is describing Jesus as the logos, the word of God. The word of God that was there from the very beginning of time, who spoke creation into existence. And this is what John says about Jesus. In John 1.14, he says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you ever thought about this question before? Why did God have to become human to save humanity from sin? Think about this question. Why why didn't he just send an angel or a prophet to die on behalf of humanity? Why, if God could do it, why didn't God save humanity with a wink or a nod and just erase sin forever Save humanity with a wink or a nod. How come he didn't present himself as the great wise willow tree like in Pocahontas? Where they go, oh, spirit mother, oh, mother willow, talk to me. And she's this wise tree who comes to life and has all this knowledge and mystery. And and why didn't God reveal himself as a tree? Why did he reveal himself as a man? Why did he become human to save us from sin? There's two reasons I want to focus on it. There might be more, but these are the two that this morning is. Number one, he had to become human because humans caused sin. Therefore, a human has to pay for sin. Humans caused sin. Therefore, it was a human that had to pay the wages of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says this. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as, Adam, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, God didn't save the earth with a wink or a nod. He didn't send an angel to die on humanity's behalf because God is good. And being good also means that he is just. And he cannot move unjustly. For example, if God were to send an angel to die on behalf of mankind, he'd be doubly unjust. He'd be putting the punishment on an innocent angel and letting the guilty humans go free. God cannot act unjustly in his goodness. Or else, how would he ever be able to defend his justice? You see, by man came sin... And by sin came death. Man has to die because man sinned. And God's law cannot be ignored. God cannot move unjustly. But, praise Jesus, God's love has an answer, doesn't it? And God decided, you know what? I have the solution. I myself am going to become a man. I'm going to take on the likeness of humans and I will die as a man for the sake of humanity to take away the wrath that they deserve. You see what's happening here. God is sending himself in the form of Jesus. He's sending his son Jesus down to die on behalf of humanity to save humanity from his own wrath. God is saving humanity from his own wrath by taking it on himself. Humans caused sin, therefore a human had to pay for sin. The second reason 
that Jesus became a man is because Jesus wanted to give us an example to follow. He wanted to give us an example to model our lives after. Jesus lived a life of purpose. He showed love to everyone he met. He walked in God's power. He had authority over sin and demons and sickness. And you might be saying, yeah, but pastor, that's because he was Jesus. He was God in the flesh. So, of course, he had authority. No, no. Did you read, did you see what we just read in Philippians? Philippians 2 says that God stepped off his throne and he did not consider being God something to use as an advantage. In other words, Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons. He had authority, not because he was God, because he relied on something different. He relied on the Holy Spirit. He relied on the Spirit of God to fill him to be able to do these things. And we are called to follow in the example of Jesus because you have the same Spirit living inside of you. Jesus laid down the advantages of being God and said, no, I'm not going to use those. Instead, I'm going to rely solely on my Father and what he gives me. I can only do what I hear the Father telling me to do. I can only do what I feel the Spirit empowering me to do. And Jesus laid down the advantages of being God so that you and I could look at the life of Jesus and say, wow, that is one exceptional life. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. Follow in my footsteps. Do the things that I did. In fact, he tells his disciples in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 7 through 8. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Imagine the wide eyes on their faces as the disciples hear this. Go and heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Now freely give. What? Run that by me again, Jesus. You want me to do what? I want you to heal the sick and raise the dead. I want you to cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have the same spirit that I have. Did you know that there is no varsity and junior varsity Holy Spirit? Come on. Jesus didn't have varsity Holy Spirit, and we all got junior varsity Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that was moving through Jesus when he did all these things that we read in Scripture is the same spirit that lives inside of you. It empowers you. It gives you victory. Jesus came to show us an example of a life that we are to follow. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. What is... What does this all mean for me? This is the question I want to answer. What is the true significance? What does it mean that Jesus came to be with me? What's the reality of the incarnation? I have the rest of our time together. And the first one is this. The reality of the incarnation, it means that God has showed his face to us. God showed his face to us. Let me tell you a story that comes from Exodus 33. Moses is on Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and they hear the revelry of Israel worshiping a golden calf down below. And God heats up. He gets angry. And he says, that's it. I've had it with these stiff-necked people. All they ever do is complain. All they ever do is disobey. He says, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. I'm going to take out the Israel. I'm going to take out my people, my chosen people. And what he's doing right here is he's seeing if Moses is going to react in the way that he wants him to react. And Moses reacts correctly 
by saying, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, God, this is not in your nature. I know that you are a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is not who you are. You made a promise to Abraham that you would make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so, therefore, don't destroy your people because you're a God who keeps your word. And I know you're a God who keeps your word. And God says, you're right, Moses. I am a God who keeps my word. I'm not going to destroy the Israelites. And after this exchange, this is what Moses says in Exodus 33, 18 through 20. Verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. God says, I will show you my glory, Moses, but I'm going to show you the backside. You can't see my face, because here's the deal, Moses. If you see my face, then somebody has to die. Somebody has to die if you see my face, God is so holy, and he's so separate from, from us in sin. We, we are sinful people, unclean people that aren't worthy to be in the presence of a holy God. And when we come in contact with a holy God, it destroys us. The sin in our life destroys us, and God is protecting Moses. He says, listen, you cannot see my face because my holiness will kill you. It'll kill the sin in you. Therefore, it'll kill you. You cannot see my face and live. Somebody has to die if you see my face. Fast forward to the New Testament. This is what we see in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 9. Philip is having a conversation with Jesus, one of, one of Jesus' disciples. His name is Philip. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Show us the face of God. Jesus, let's see the Father's face. Show us his face. And Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen my face, you've seen the Father's face, Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. When you see Jesus, you see the face of God. The invisible God made himself visible to humanity. When Jesus came into the world, God showed his face to sinful humans. And you might be asking the good question, how then did people not perish when they looked at the face of a holy and sinless God? When they looked at Jesus, how did they not die? It was because Jesus became the mediator between God and man by being both God and man. God placed the punishment of sin upon himself by becoming a sinless man. God told Moses, if you see my face, somebody has to die. And he said, you know what? I want to show humanity my face, and I'll die. It'll all be worth it. And God said, let's show them our face. Let's show them who we are. Let's go be among them. They need help. They can't get out of this on their own. They're separated from sin. They're separated from me because of their sin. They're enemies of God. They can't fix it, so I have to do something. 
I've got to step out of my throne and I've got to come and I've got to show them my face. There's many instances in scripture where people are encouraged to seek the face of God. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Numbers chapter 6, it's a blessing over people. Number 6.24, may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. See, the Hebrew word for face is often translated presence. And so for the Hebrew writer, the face of a person refers to all of a person. A person's face reveals much about their character and their personality, doesn't it? We see the inward emotions of a person expressed outwardly on their face. And we recognize a person by looking at their face. I know it's you because I see your face. I recognize your face. How do we know when someone is happy or sad? We look at their face. In a, in a sense, one's face represents the whole person. And in the same way, Jesus is the face of God. He displayed God's personality for the world to see. He displayed God's will for the world to see. And he displayed God's character. What does God want in this situation? Well, what did Jesus do? What? What is God's personality like? Did he laugh? Did he cry? Well, let's look at the life of Jesus. What did Jesus display for us? How does Jesus act? What's God's character like? Well, how, how did Jesus act? He was full of compassion, wasn't he? He was full of justice. He cared for the poor and the marginalized and the outcasts. And he, he flipped tables in the temple because it was keeping the Gentiles, it was keeping people from coming to the temple to worship freely. And Jesus displayed perfectly the character of God, what God is like. And what does this mean for us? It means that we can bring all of our questions about God to the Gospels. We can bring all of our questions about God, all of our questions about life and his will for our life and what he wants and who he is. We bring all of our questions to God, about God, to the Gospels. We can ask, does God cry? Does he laugh? Does he get angry? What things are the most important to God? What does God really think about me? The answer to all of these questions, they can be found in Jesus. We can ask ourselves, well, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? Where did Jesus spend most of his time? What did he talk the most about? That's an important one. If you go back and read all the red letters in the Gospels, find out what it was that God's message was to the world. Jesus talked the most about the kingdom of heaven being a reality here on earth, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. Jesus talked about God's presence coming down, God's kingdom coming down. Praise God that we have a God who when we were powerless and we couldn't do anything to fix the separation between the two of us, God decided he would show his face. The second thing that the incarnation, what it means for us, is that we have a God who can relate to us. Jesus can relate to us. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted 
in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You know, when somebody experiences loss or pain, they tend to gravitate towards people who can genuinely say, I know how you feel. Don't we? When you experience loss or pain in your life, one of the greatest comforts is when you meet somebody else who's been down that road, they can look at you in the face and sincerely say, I know exactly how you're feeling. I remember uh, this, this doesn't compare to some of the pain and loss that, that, that some of you have experienced, but I remember during COVID, uh, pastors and school superintendents and small business owners, we were all kind of in the same boat. Uh, when it came to decisions about vaccines and masks, because it, it seemed like no matter what decision we made, somebody was angry with us. We, we were always kind of like being, our decisions were being pushed against. Somebody was irritated, sending angry emails. And so we found a lot of comfort in one another. Pastors tended to gravitate towards one another and, because we could genuinely say, hey, this, this person knows exactly how I'm feeling. They're going through this. The small business owner, the school superintendent, they know exactly what I'm going through. In a more heavy sense, parents who have lost a child, they tend to gravitate to other parents who have also lost a child because they're the only ones who can say, I know how you feel. I know the weight, the pain of that loss. By the way, isn't it even equally discomforting and unencouraging when somebody doesn't genuinely mean it? When you express the loss of a loved one and they say, oh, I know how you feel. I lost a dog last summer. No, you don't. That's not the same kind of loss. Don't, don't bother me with this kind of loss. It, it's irritating. So don't do that ever, church, okay? Don't do that. But we tend to gravitate towards people who can look at us and say, genuinely, I know exactly how you feel. Jesus can genuinely look you in the face and say, I know exactly what you're going through. I know exactly how you feel. Did Jesus ever experience loss? Absolutely. Jesus lost his father. Joseph, he lost his father, not his heavenly father, his earthly dad, whom he loved. Jesus lost his dad. Jesus also lost his best friend, Lazarus. He knows what it's, what it's like to experience loss. Now, did Lazarus stay in the grave? No, he did not. In fact, did Joseph stay in the grave? No, he did not. Joseph is alive somewhere out there. We know, we know where he's at. Did Jesus experience temptation? Yes. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And he defeated temptation with the word of God. He knows about shame. His mother, Mary, was a teenage girl who was claiming that she had a miraculous divine conception. That this child I have is God's son and who's going to believe that? And so she was an outcast in her town, and people looked at Jesus and Mary a certain way, like, mm, I don't know about those two. I think they're full of BS. Jesus knows what shame is like. Am I allowed to say BS in church? Well, I didn't say the actual words. It stands for, it stands for Blake Silly. They're full of Blake Silly. Okay, get back on track. Forgive me and move on. Let's go. Does Jesus know about loneliness? Yeah. In the garden, can you imagine this? Jesus is on the eve of the most terrible 
excruciatingly painful experience he's ever going to go through. He's about to endure the weight of the whole world's sin and be executed on a cross, one of the most painful ways to die. And all he's asking from his friends is, hey, would you please stay awake with me and pray with me? Because I need your prayers. I'm going, I'm, I'm going through. He was so stressed out. He was sweating blood. And he looked at his best friends, his closest disciples. said, would you just stay with me? And he comes back, and they're asleep. Really, guys? Come on. I'm about to go through something really hard, and you're falling asleep on me. Jesus knows what loneliness is like. Does he know what betrayal feels like? Yes. One of his closest disciples, Judas, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. He knows what betrayal, the pain of betrayal, and he knows what physical pain feels like. Jesus was not exempt from physical pain. In fact, he chose the cross. He chose to die one of the most excruciating deaths for you. And he embraced the pain of the cross. He knows what it's like to experience the things that you've experienced. Now, you might be asking, all right, pastor, I get it. But does Jesus know the struggle of addiction? Does Jesus know the weight of depression, the darkness of depression? Does he, does he know what it's like to live with sickness, to live with chronic pain? Does he know what it's like to live these things? And my honest answer to you is no. Because those things are a symptom of sin. They are symptoms of sin, and Jesus had no sin. But he came to take away those things. Jesus came to take away your addiction, to give you victory. He came to take away your depression, to give you hope and joy. He came to bring healing for your body. Jesus came to assault the kingdom of darkness, to assault sin, to destroy it. He doesn't know what those things are like because he came to take those away. And this is why he says, come to me. Come to me. If you're struggling with addiction, come to me. If you're struggling with depression, come to me. Look at my life and I will make you well. If you're struggling with sickness in your body, if you've had chronic pain, Jesus says, come to me. And I will bring healing for your body. Aren't you thankful that we don't serve a God who says, well, that's just too bad that you're suffering with addiction. It's too bad that you're lost in depression. It's too bad that you have all this pain. But here's what you got to do. Just call out to me somewhere in the big blue yonder. And hopefully I'll hear you. And hopefully I'll make things well. No, Jesus didn't make it so ambiguous. God didn't make it so, so mysterious. What he did is he dropped Jesus right in front of our faces. He said, hey, if you're struggling with addiction, go to him. He's right there. If you're struggling with de depression, come to him. If you have pain, come to him. He'll make you well. And Jesus, he shows up on the scene and he says, come to me. Here I am. This is what I look like. This is what God looks like. This is what God does. Come to me and I will give you rest my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Trade me. Give me your sickness. Give me your depression. Give me your addiction, and I'll give you hope and joy and a future. I'll give you healing. Come to me. Aren't you thankful that we serve a God who dropped himself in the midst of humanity for us to see, and we know where to go. We know who to call to. It's the name of Jesus. The third thing, the last thing, <clears throat> is that Jesus wants to be with you. 
The incarnation means that God not only loves you, but he likes you. He wants to be with you. Matthew 1.23, this is one of the names of God. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. He wants to be with you. The implication is that Jesus, as the Son of God, who is God, he's with you. The Savior of the world, he wants to be by your side. Whatever you are going through, whatever darkest night you're experiencing. Some of you may think, some of you may think, God doesn't want me. He doesn't want a relationship with me because I've done too many things. I've disobeyed him too many times. I've walked away so many times. I've asked for forgiveness for the same thing for a decade in my life, for two decades, for three decades. I've had the same addictions my whole life. I've asked God for forgiveness. I've had conversations with God, and I keep going back to sin. Surely God's had enough. He said 70 times 7. I'm sure I've, I've exceeded that. I'm past 70 times 7. I can't get any more forgiveness from God. He's expired. I'm all out. Listen, that's a, that's a lie. God says, no, no, no. I sent Jesus to die for you knowing that this would happen, knowing that you would get stuck in a cycle. And we're not at the end of the gospel story yet, but as we will see in week four, is this is why he sent the Holy Spirit. He sent the Holy Spirit to break the cycles of addiction, to empower you to choose the good option, to empower you to choose the better life. But Jesus, in the meantime, says, I want to be with you. Does he want to be with me in the midst of my sin? Yes, he does. It kind of makes, uh, you know, it kind of, it's a different story when you can picture Jesus sitting next to you while you're sinning. That Jesus... He doesn't run away from that. Oh, no, it's messy. It's dirty. Get it away. No, he sits there with us in the midst of it, and his Holy Spirit gently convicts us. This isn't right. This isn't the way. Does our sin wound the heart of God? Yes, but it's our shame that pushes us away from God. God doesn't go anywhere. Our shame and our sin removes us from God. It pushes us away from his presence. Was it God that left the garden? No, it was Adam and Eve that left. And this is what we do. When we find ourselves in sin, we think God has removed himself from my life. He doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. And that is not true. It is your sin and the shame, the guilt that you feel that causes you to think that God doesn't want you anymore. That causes you to think that you're not worthy for his love anymore. That makes you think, makes you believe that your sin was greater than the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is all whispers from the enemy. Because God hasn't gone anywhere. He is waiting with outstretched arms to say, let's try this again. This is why Jesus died. So you can try it again. So you can get up and I can wash you clean. It was good enough. The sacrifice of Jesus was good enough. It was more than enough. God loves you regardless of what you've done. And he still wants to be with you. I'm going to invite Mary to come up and play as we close. Church, we've got to get this. Because how many years of our life have gone wasted thinking that God doesn't really want to be with me? 
Maybe you've grown up in the church, but you feel like you can't keep up with the rules. You can't keep up with the good behavior. That Man, I just, I see all these other perfect people to my left and right. That was a joke, by the way. I have Blake silly. That's right. I see these perfect people to my left and right, and I just can't be like them. I can't be like, oh, Pastor Blake, he's so wonderful. Thank you, guys. Listen, listen. I probably have the darkest shadows, some of the darkest shadows in this room. I, I, I've battled these thoughts so much in my life. I've grown up in the church, and I've battled the thoughts of unworthiness, feeling like I cannot approach the throne of God that he doesn't want me unless I first clean myself up. I've got to fix myself. I've got to get myself in order. And then afterwards, then maybe God will accept my prayers. Maybe he'll hear me. Maybe he'll want me back with him again. Am I the only one? Come on. We've got to get this. We have to understand that there, there's not enough time to be wasted spending our life separate from the presence of God because of our shame and our guilt. Jesus died on the cross so that you would not waste any time. So you would slip up and he would, Jesus would come right alongside and he'd say, oh, that's okay, just get up, get up. And he'd brush you off and say, you got this, you got this. I'm going to give you more of my spirit. I'm going to fill you more. You're going to go out and you're going to do it next time. You're going to say no to that addiction next time. You are going to walk in authority. You're going to walk in boldness. You're not going to fear anymore next time. Get up off the ground. Don't worry about it. But we stay down. We say, oh, but I just, I've been here for so long, Jesus. It's been, it's been years. I just can't, I can't figure this out. God, I'm never going to be worthy of you. I'm never going to be good enough. And you know what the good answer is? Jesus says, you're right. You're never going to be good enough. You're not. So stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to perform. Stop trying to be the best version of yourself. You're never going to be that. Let me be that for you. Just live day by day filled with the spirit that I showed you. Read scripture. You can see how I modeled a spirit-filled life. Do that every day. And when you mess up, I'll be right there to pick you up. Don't you dare stay on the ground and think that you deserve to be on the ground. Don't you dare stop. You let me pick you up. And you be honest with the people around you. Confess your sins to one another so you can find true healing. Because when things are brought into the light, there's no shame that can hold us down. When things are brought into the light, there's no guilt that can hold us down. The devil has nothing on us to hold us down. Praise God. And so this morning, I'm going to ask everybody to stand. And can we have um, some of the prayer team I'm springing this on you, but Glenn and Mary, would you, Rosemary, would you come up here? Dad, would you come up here? Kurt, are you here in the room? Jethro, Cheryl, would you guys come up? Dormeyers, come on up. That shame is something that will ultimately destroy you because you will never feel worthy. You'll never be good enough. And Jesus wants to break the chains of shame off of some of you. And here's the thing. It's going to require some honesty on our part. It's going to require some confession on our part. And I want to give an opportunity. These are safe people. These are confidential people. 
And we're going to stay here for a little bit. Even as everybody exits, I'd like the ministry team to stay up here for a little while, even after everybody goes. And if you want to wait a little bit for people to exit, that's fine. But, but I want you to come forward, and I want you to pray. If you've, if you've been experiencing shame, and you feel like you've wandered away from the Lord, and you feel like you're caught in a cycle, I'm going to break. This morning, I believe God wants to break that cycle. Here's the question I want to ask you. We have a God who would submit himself to being human, to go through the same stuff that we go through. He can relate to us. And the reason he did it is because he just wants to be with you. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, who do I want to be with? Who do I want to be with? Because we choose all sorts of things that aren't Jesus. We choose all sorts of addictions and coping mechanisms and things that bring us comfort. We choose all sorts of things that aren't Jesus. And Jesus says, choose me. I chose you. I came here to be with you. Now, who do you want to be with? I don't know about you, but I want to be with Jesus. I want to be in the arms of Jesus. He made himself available. He's approachable. And we have to acknowledge that Jesus came for me personally. Would everybody bow their heads and close their eyes for a moment? Holy Spirit, thank you for your gentle conviction that you do not stomp us into the ground and make us feel guilty about what we've done. But Holy Spirit, you pick us up and you look us in the face and you say, hey, listen, this is why Jesus died, so I can be with you. Don't stay down. Get up. Holy Spirit, convict the hearts in this room that need to be convicted. Lord, I pray for an attitude of repentance, a heart of repentance in this place. And Jesus, we're so grateful that you showed your face to us. We're so grateful that you can relate to us in every pain, every tension, everything in our life. And we submit to you, Jesus. Before we, we close and we have people come forward, I want, I want to ask you, keep your, your heads bowed, eyes closed. If you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never admitted that he is Lord, he wants a relationship with you, and you desire a relationship with him, if that's you in this place, and you say, I'm ready to make Jesus my Lord and Savior. I'm ready to be on his side. Would you raise your hand right now? Encourage, boldness, raise your hand up. Let me see your hands. Raise them high for me to see. I see your hand in the back. Anybody else? I see your hand over here. In the back over there, I see your hand. Anybody else? Don't ignore this moment. Don't let this moment pass you by. The Holy Spirit, there's a grace in this room right now. Let me see your hands just a few moments more. Repeat after me. Jesus. I love you with all my heart. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I choose to turn the other way. I will be honest. I will let you pick me back up when I fall. And give me your Holy Spirit to empower me to choose the good things. I love you, Lord. Make me new again. In your name. Amen.